Hello and welcome to another edition of the One Drink Book Club. Today we're going to be discussing Rogue Heroes, the history of the SAS, Britain's secret special forces unit that sabotaged the Nazis and changed the nature of war, a book by Ben McIntyre. My guest tonight is Ken Braun, an old colleague and friend who has recommended several great history books and books about the military to me in the past. And as the incredibly long and descriptive title of this book tells us, it is about the start of an unconventional British commando group that conducts a guerrilla war against the Germans and the Italians with the action occurring in North Africa and throughout Europe. Uh, Welcome, Ken. Thanks for joining me. Uh, happy to be here, Jamie. Glad I made the cut uh, and ma- passed the audition. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course you did. As I mentioned, you guys, you have um, recommended several great books to me in the past, and, and usually on a topic that I had very little knowledge of. So I always enjoy kind of you know learning uh, some new stuff uh, when I read things. Yeah, I uh, well, I mean, I generally, with a couple of exceptions, read books on topics that I have very little knowledge of, and this was certainly one of them. So just a general impression, did you, did, you know, what did you think of this? Oh, I loved it. It was a lot of fun. It, it, I mean, and it reminded me of uh, a couple of other historical books of actually a later era that uh, I've read uh, regarding the Vietnam War, which we can get into a little bit, but uh, if it dovetailed nicely with the storylines in some of those. Yeah, it really felt like a novel and not necessarily like a historical, you know, recording of of true facts. I mean, some of the stories inside there were incredible and the characters too were straight out of Hollywood and so it it didn't surprise me that they've now kind of turned this into a series. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't until I until you referenced it earlier today to me. I didn't even know that, but I will definitely check it out. I did read Ben McIntyre's A Spy Among Friends probably shortly after it came out. And that was turned into a, a miniseries with Damian Lewis playing Philby's friend from the novel. And that was done very well. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. I've, I've actually read a, several of uh, Ben McIntyre's books, uh, Spy Among Us, oh, a Spy Among Friends. I mean, yeah, yeah, The Spy and the Traitor and Agent Zigzag, I think, are the ones that I've read. And he, he's got a lot more. He does incredible research. And I think he puts these together really well. I can't imagine how tough it is to read all these words diaries, all these official reports about things, and then craft a narrative. And as you said, uh, Spy Among Friends also came off very novel-like, not dry history, but really brought the story alive. And secondary difficulty in what you're saying, but in a lot of cases, he's still he's writing about people who are still alive or just recently passed and have family that could contradict him if he screws something up. So it makes it extra hard. <laughs> oh, totally. The other big question that needs to be answered is what did you make as your drink tonight? Yeah, that one. So I, given the insane drinking that Patty Main did, I could never match that, but I was trying to think of something that would come close enough. Fortunately, I'm older than the 40 years old that Patty Maine made it to and have calmed down a bit. So um, I looked it up. Um, you know, he was from Ireland. He was an Irish Protestant. And I thought I was right. But uh, Guinness was founded by an Irish Anglican. So I got Guinness Extra Stout, which is the heavier version of it, just to meet Patty halfway. You know, I was also tempted by Patty Maine. And so I looked at doing an Irish car bomb, which ah, seemed to okay. be kind of very apt for his personality, but I also just didn't want to make a giant mess over my desk. So I, <laughs> I rethought it and decided to go with the quintessential British drink, 
and made myself a gin and tonic. Okay. (laughs) So the only fancy part of my gin and tonic is that I used a lime that I grew myself on my lime tree. Oh, nice. Very good. (laughs) I always feel like, I mean, gin and tonics are always so refreshing. Mm -hmm. I would would have gone with that if I'd have thought of it. Yeah, that's, I like those. So you read a lot. Do you tend to read or do you listen? Prior to podcasts, such as this awesome one, becoming more, uh, uh, more of my uh, routine. I used to read or listen to books and read them. Um, now, almost exclusively, I read them and read them on my Kindle. Nice. Overall, I'm super impressed with the the quality of voiceover talents on these books. Ben McIntyre decided to read this particular book himself, which I generally frown on the author doing that. The authors tend to be very good at writing. Uh, they aren't always really good at reading out hmm. loud. I'd say my, my one big exception on that is uh, Rob Lowe's book, because clearly Rob Lowe knows how to Strange, to do a yeah. voiceover and how to do that. So the only I, I listened to it, it was it was totally fine, but I think it would have benefited from uh, a true voiceover talent. And I think he did because I listened to A Spy Among Friends and I think he did have somebody who was I don't think that was him. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, you are definitely somebody if if I'm thinking of of a friend who likes historical records and and especially military related stuff, I I definitely think of you. Are, are the recommendations that you've read recently that you would say, "Hey, you definitely check this out." So, I guess this book, I, which we can discuss why, but the it, it was kind of the uh, inverse of something. I didn't read it recently, but I've read it um, recent enough that I remember the uh, the gist of it. It was a biography of General William Westmoreland called Westmoreland, the General Who Lost Vietnam by Lewis Sorley. And General Westmoreland is about as polar opposite of everyone involved in the making of the SAS that you can possibly imagine. Very conventional thinker, not a terribly curious man, really, really into following the rules. And, uh, you know, he he was just a terribly boring, conventional person. He became the head of cadets at West Point and really showed his later proclivity for charts and graphs and record keeping because he, one of his proudest accomplishments, and he could prove it with the data, was that he got the West Point banned to lose weight. Real exciting guy like this. Tried to ban Playboy subscriptions from being mailed into West Point uh, because it was lascivious and, and licentious content, he said, until he was informed that even the superintendent of West Point could not interdict the U.S. mail. So uh, compare him to Patty Maine and Dave Sterling and, and that crew who didn't really have any respect for rules at all. I, I found that a good pairing book to, to put with that. Um, one that I actually did read recently that for one reason or another made me think of this book was called Off the Wall, Death in Yosemite. It was about all of the creative ways people have managed to kill themselves since Yosemite National Park was created, written by a former park ranger and uh, another, I think the guy was a rock climber, uh, wrote in conjunction with it. Relation to this book, there were lots of stories in this that related to it, but one of them, the authors had a lot of respect for rock climbers who generally safer people, even though dangerous pursuit, don't like base jumpers at all. And uh, they told one story of a base jumper who has made himself famous for not being captured after he had done these things. So naturally, he decides to do this off of El Capitan in Yosemite Valley, which literally has like one exit point, one road that you can get out of. 
this guy makes his jump and he gets surrounded and decides still not, you know, makes the jump safely. The parachute, unlike some of the other folks in the story, don't get, uh, doesn't get tangled up. He doesn't hit a tree, anything like this. Gets surrounded, takes off high tails, and this is only a few years ago, and ends up jumping in the Merced River, which is another way to escape because that flows rapidly out of the valley. Somewhat too rapidly, he got trapped against a rock and drowned. <laughs> so, well, that sounds like me- a delightfully, delightfully uplifting book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, 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 there's, I could, I could go on and on about it. Um, it reminded me of this one only because, um, kind of lack of attention to rules that the base jumper had. Plus the fact that in this book, even though this is about paratroopers, they get most successful when they, when they get, when they quit using the parachutes. And it seems like every time they jump out of parachutes in throughout the entire book, something bad happens. They get, they get dropped behind, you know, in, into the middle of enemy troops that grab them. They break things. They get lost. They get separated. They, you know, horrible things happen whenever these guys jump out of parachutes, even though they're paratroopers. So, uh, yeah, the special yeah. air service was a bad name uh, exactly. for the group. Uh, anytime that they used the air, they ended up really messing things up. I thought that exactly. was pretty funny. Exactly. <laughs> On a scale of one to five, what would you rate this book? Um, surely a four. I, I enjoyed it. I, I wouldn't credit it as oh my gosh, one of the greatest books I've ever read. But there's been a lot of them, and, and it's a you know a small list. Uh, it certainly kept me entertained. I was. Sad to see it done. I, I envy anybody who's picking it up the first time. That's that's to me the standard of a good book. I wasn't, you know, when's this going to be over with? I, you know, I bought it and invested time in it. I mean, I that's more than half of the books I read are drudgery like that. But like I said, I read the uh, I read another book from the same author. I think I enjoyed A Spy Among Friends tad bit more but uh I, this is certainly a piece of history i was unaware of and uh like i said reminded me a lot of the vietnam histories i've read from you know the one that i just mentioned but the uh, sas look pure Viet Cong in their actions and in their in their foibles as well the thing that um i i often if i'm reading nonfiction, there are times where i feel like i'm taking my medicine where i you know that I, it's like i'm <laughs> yeah. I'm getting ready for a test. I'm going to be really glad to get it done. And then I'm going to read something I enjoy. And this one didn't have that feel. And and none of uh, Ben McIntyre's have had that feel. The fact that he is able to craft a narrative and a storyline that makes it feel more like a novel, I think is a real talent for sure. Yeah, I don't read a lot of nonfiction and plots kind of disappoint me a lot of times. But you are correct. The, the nonfiction books, especially history books, even when I'm interested in the subject and getting good stuff out of it, there aren't a large number of very talented writers like like this one, McIntyre, who can hold your interest all the way through and you don't feel like you're working to finish it because you started. <laughs> <laughs> you've done a lot of the history. You've done a lot of Vietnam. I've done a lot of historical fiction about World War II as well as some, some nonfiction about World War II. But I had no idea, A, about the SAS – and I also had no uh, knowledge of the North African aspect. If you haven't read this book, a lot of the beginning of the SAS revolved around the fact that the Germans and the Italians had essentially taken all over all of North Africa. And the British and the Allies were kind of stuck in Egypt around Cairo and they were trying to move west and, and take over these air bases and some of the supply lines they had in North Africa because the Axis powers could attack Europe and attack 
the Mediterranean from these bases in North Africa. And the big idea that David Sterling, founder of the SAS, was that, hey, we could get airplanes to drop us in the desert that is south of these air bases, and they would never expect us to attack from their southern flank. And so we could surprise them and we could blow up airplanes on the ground and cause some havoc. And as you mentioned, once they discovered, they had kind of an epiphany because when they got dropped from airplanes, people ended up getting off, you know, off target. They'd get lost in the desert. They would break their legs, all sorts of things. There was this long range motorized group that would come pick them up. They had figured out how to drive Jeeps and and other trucks through the desert by deflating the tires and, and doing these modifications to the engine. And they finally thought, well, geez, if these guys could pick us up when we get <laughs> dropped by the airplanes, maybe they could just drive us in and we don't have to drop out of airplanes. And that was kind of a big epiphany there, which was a cool aspect. But did you know much about the the North African part of the World War II? Just what I saw in Patton, I guess. I mean, (laughs) I I haven't read a lot of World War II history, and I knew the SAS were the British special operators, knew nothing really about their history. I mean, I think I can say now I know as much or more about the British special operators history than I do about the American, the American version. So (laughs) as you said, these guys didn't, were were complete rogues in the, the title is a great title, the rogue heroes in that they had no respect for authority at all. And, Mm -hmm. and they were able to talk their way into getting kind of this separate group that was not really accountable to anybody. And they just kind of hung out in the desert and, uh, begged, borrowed, and stole equipment and uh, went in and, and wreaked havoc in some of these uh, air bases for the Germans and the Italians. There were so many great little like mini missions that they did that I thought were really just unbelievable. Were there any that stood out from you in the story that you thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did that? Yeah, so the, fir- the first half of the book uh, is about their adventures in the desert that you're mentioning and their first adventures. And in that case, it, it, the, the book really read like a, uh, a combat version of MASH in its just audacious craziness. They're, you know, they, they weren't really suffering big casualties. They were pulling off amazing raids, and uh, the signature event was their unsuccessful raid and attempt to raid Benghazi when they decorated up their truck to look like a German vehicle and, or it was a German, they painted it up and basically rode their way into Benghazi speaking German at the Italian supposed allies, convinced the Italians that they were Germans and warning them of the British that were going to raid the base, i.e. them pretending to be the Germans. And it became so convincing that they eventually had Italian troops following them, looking for them, <laughs> but not realizing <laughs> that they were and just bluffing their way through and dressing down the border, you know, the guards on the base bluffed their way all through this town and out and out the back and never got caught. I really enjoyed that one. I could not believe the amount of bluffing they would do. They would, you know, pretend they were Germans, pretend pretend they were Italians. I mean, they were just so cocky. They got away with it. At one point, they discover a giant collection of these heavy machine guns that I think are supposed to be mounted on airplane. They figure out that they can mount them to their American Jeeps. And they turn these Jeeps into these crazy weapons where they drive down the runways of these air bases. They break into the air base and then just shoot up every plane that's sitting on the tarmac there. And it was unbelievable. 
with anti-aircraft guns mounted on vehicles that they're driving like at almost stall speed for the jeeps and yeah just parading down i mean i was i was hoping at some point that i'd hear jokes of them putting you know the little air to air kill stickers on the outside of the jeeps it was i mean these were supposed to be paratroopers i put a note in the book you know we started out jumping out of airplanes and planting bombs and now these guys are just driving slowly across airfields, firing anti-aircraft guns directly at empty planes. And the evolution of their success and the, the level of it was just maddening. I mean, that, uh, you know, 70 planes destroyed one guy, you know, sprained an ankle or something crazy would happen. Yeah, the first half of the book was not gory and a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was like a giant commercial for Jeeps, too. I mean, it, yeah, it, it made Jeeps seem like the most indispensable, awesome uh, tool in the, the British armory. Some of the, the characters, too, clearly... The SAS wouldn't have come about without David Sterling. You mentioned Patty Maine, who uh, was also another really interesting character. It's unbelievable to me that somebody who was so irreverent and hated authority like Patty Maine and had obviously was an alcoholic and had a huge temper was able to rise to a level where he was commanding. Uh, at one point, I think he was the, the leader of a battalion. Like it was insane. Yeah. And, and kind of bristling it at his own authority at that point, insisting on jumping in and, and joining his troops when he was being told to stay home. I think, you know, it, what doesn't get brought out en enough in the book, I mean, not the author's fault, but it kind of gets overshadowed by the rest of Maine's personality is that he was a very apparently a very charismatic person and, and people just loved to follow him. Also, he was a lawyer. He was very well read. All of these things are listed in the book, but you kind of forget them as you're hearing about the bombastic and violent temper and all the rest of it. I mean, clearly a just boundlessly intelligent man who kept learning. Compare him to Westmoreland, who throughout that book, you are repeatedly reminded that Westmoreland didn't like to read, period, <laughs> and was kind of proud of it. <laughs> so, so that, I think, is an important caveat to Patty Maine's character is that he ha had a lot more going on that didn't necessarily fit the battlefield in all cases. Yeah. I think towards the end, they, they mentioned that he ended up being one of the most decorated soldiers during world war II in the British army. And, and he seemed almost unstoppable. His ability to not die in a, in a number of situations where somebody was trapped and he went and rescued them or he would, there's a scene in it where he basically opens the door of a hut that has, you know, 30 or 40 guys in it and just stands there with a Tommy gun and throws in a couple of grenades and just stands there in the doorway shooting. I mean, it was it was kind of an Indiana Jones type character for sure. Yeah, definitely. As I recall, that was during the desert campaign portion of the the story, where not a lot of I mean, a lot of a lot of equipment is getting destroyed, but not a lot of um, enemy contact is happening. That was a a a complete obverse of that. It was an instance where Patty Main just decided to jump in and initiate contact. I think he ended up, it was a bunch of pilots that he took out too, if I remember this, that particular yeah. story right. So yeah. he really did his fair of damage to equipment as well <laughs> in that they didn't have anybody to fly the planes that were being destroyed and then replaced. So, uh, but yeah. Um, One man wrecking crew. That he was. <laughs> was there anybody else character-wise that, that stood out to you as memorable? Yeah, I liked uh, Roy Farron. 
the foreign office employee who, as the war starts, gets irritated that the foreign office won't release him from his employment because this was considered really important to something and there were regulations to be followed. And because of his family position, he discovered that he had a darn good chance of running for parliament and winning. And once winning, he, uh, a member of parliament, was immediately dispatched from any commitments to things like working for the foreign office. So he literally ran for office and won the office because he wanted to go to war, <laughs> which is sort of the opposite <laughs> of what we think of as uh, for the, why people um, become politicians. And uh, then that personality was proven out later on when he was leading commanding troops and ordered to stay back and not to go out into the field. And as close as they would let him go is to ride in the airplane with the guys when they were going to jump. And he claimed to have accidentally fallen out of the plane and ended up running around Europe with them, disobeying orders flagrantly to not do things, ended up blowing up and destroying a whole lot of valuable Nazi equipment, which ended up, uh, even though he was disobeying orders horribly, he, uh, he was highly successful and narrowly avoided a court-martial. So, yeah, typical to the other leadership characters in the book. Incredibly successful and not at all taken with authority. I can't imagine trying to manage the group of people that they put together. I mean, clearly they were picking people who hated authority, wanted to do their own thing, and were, were pretty smart, too. So, I it was it really did not follow any of the rules of normal military working. and it gets more cumbersome as they you know they one the first sas ends up with 2500 guys at one point i mean once you get that you start getting big you become a logistical problem that you don't have when you're that small raiding party running around in the desert and uh, all of the things that makes it work start to cause more problems than perhaps they they solve yeah i think one of my other characters that i liked outside of the david sterling uh patty main crowd was mike sadler who was the desert navigator who was almost clairvoyant in the, his ability to navigate these wide stretches of desert and basically put everybody exactly where they need to be and do it by the stars, by very little information. And a lot of this area that they were traveling in was actually unmapped. Like nobody had been there. Everything looks the same, except when it doesn't, because the sand is constantly changing the terrain. And uh, yeah, I mean, I can't follow my way around a national park without a GPS mapping thing. And, and here's this guy running around a desert that looks different depending on how hard the wind blew the night before. And yeah, amazing stuff. I, I thought he was impressive. To me, I thought the book had about two distinct areas. There was the David Sterling, the start of the SAS, and then all of the the activity in Africa. And then David Sterling, not to give anything away, but he gets captured and is no longer in the leadership. And then all of the action moves to Europe. So it's a whole different theater of war. The style changes. Is there one of those sections that you liked more than the other? I thought the first section was a lot more fun. Like I said, more, more moments of comic levity are happening in that section, more just I thought it was unrealistic. I mean, I know it really happened, but as far as how warfare usually works, it doesn't come off that clean. I mean, they were in a really unique place in history. They they really weren't in a theater of war. They were they were able to just make these raids. They had this desert between them and their and their pursuers and they just had a very unique opportunity that Sterling correctly discovered and made the most of it. 
when they get into Europe, it becomes more of what warfare is. And they see children dead on the sides of the streets. There were no children in Africa. They're taking heavier casualties. They are, you know, they're being redeployed as recon forces rather than as these raiding parties that are kind of making their own decisions. In some cases, they have to fight defensive actions. Then when they get into Germany, they've got literally children fighting against them. McIntyre is very good at talking about that transition and how it really begins to weigh on some of these guys in ways that wasn't happening in the earlier part of it. So I found the second half of it much more conventional is not the, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an amazingly well-told story. I wasn't having just as much rah-rah fun reading it. It, it. it, it ceased being a comedy and it was now more of a, a very serious war drama. So it was a very useful thing. I guess I enjoyed them both equally, but for just vastly different reasons. Yeah. You're right. There was more lightheartedness in the first half. They were almost like fraternity guys mm-hmm. out at a party. and, and yeah. Yeah. And, were- and it got really, clearly people were dying. I mean, they had colleagues that died and mm-hmm. in the Africa section, but it, it got a lot more brutal when they got into Europe. And when they saw some of the abuses that the Nazis were doing to citizens, as you mentioned, the kids and everything else, and citizens that were just getting you know mowed down who were non-combatants and things like that. By that point, the Nazis were also, Hitler ordered every SAS captured was going to be put down, <laughs> weren't going to take prisoners, which I suspect was more counterproductive than successful as a, as a way of deterring them. I mean, makes them want to fight harder if they're near to being captured. But yeah, it was it was much more serious business. Uh, the closer they got to Germany. And then once they got in Germany, I mean, they liberate a concentration camp. I mean, it's, it's, it's rough stuff. That was, that was an amazing uh, scene. It was a good way to kind of close out the book is that they liberated this concentration camp to hear their reports of what they saw and how amazed they were at the brutality when they found that camp that was still being guarded. The, the guards were still there and the commandant of the camp was still there and did not seem they were so used to the situation that they didn't act either embarrassed or shameful or anything. They just kind of were standing around. It was bizarre. In one case, killed a prisoner who was breaking the rules in in the presence of the uh, the commandos that were taking the camp. I mean, clearly there and taking over the camp. Yeah, I. I that was that was surreal. Um, I think an entire book could be written just about that day. Yeah. You know, it, what always strikes me about, especially World War II things, where you had a, a pretty massive draft, a lot of people who were in the army that would not necessarily join the military. Right now we have a professional military. People who join the army fit into a certain class, either age or profession, more so than when you had an open draft or, or you had a lot of the, the population enlisting. And it always makes me kind of wonder, I think about the people I work with, the people I know, all right, if we were all shoved into a an army brigade, you know, what would be the personalities? How would these people act? Who would be the successful soldiers who would not be? Um, and I guess, you know, you really never know how people would react to that kind of stress, that kind of uh, situation until you're there. But it's it strikes me as so bizarre to take a school teacher, a lawyer, a construction worker, and then say, okay, now you're all soldiers and you are going to be in these life-threatening situations. And now you have to be brave. You have to be creative. You have to be um, aggressive. It's just kind of a bizarre situation. Yeah. My, so my dad was drafted into Vietnam at the 
a ripe old age of 26, he did everything he could to avoid it until, and as a result of doing everything he could to avoid it by going to college and getting married and whatnot, well, by the time he gets drafted at age 26, it's late 19, he gets sent to Vietnam just in time for the Tet Offensive, but he's able to, you know, he can type, he's, he's a company clerk for actually some special operators, but he, you know, has guys under him that are in charge of supplying things and whatnot, and most of them are younger than, you know, a lot younger than he is. He's a sergeant at this point. So after spending all this time doing everything he can to avoid this, my mom says when he got back, took him a long time to adjust to not having the responsibility anymore for, and he wasn't in combat situations all the time, really at all. He was being brought into situations after battles were over to set up supply stuff and whatnot. But with people working underneath him that he was responsible for making sure they didn't do something stupid and then came home and civilian life, even after a year, civilian life was, you know, slower and less responsible. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, clearly uh, we, we have started to pay a lot more attention to that kind of transition and, and trying to help people come out of those situations with the, the mental health treatments that they need and, and the adjustments they need. But it, my, it, my dad became a repo man in Detroit when he got home, so I don't know if it worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was still pretty bad in the 70s, I, and, and I think there's a long way to go now, but I think it's at least – acknowledge that it's a bigger problem. Well, do you have anything on your nightstand, Ken, that you're looking forward to reading? What's your what's your next book? I guess the the contemporary things going on right now, uh the biography of Elon Musk that Walter Isaacson is uh coming out with uh sometime soon is interesting to me just because talk about personality. I, I guess I'm drawn to personalities that don't like rule following. Elon's definitely that. And it's done done wondrous things for him. So uh that's the only thing that's springs to mind offhand that uh, I think I'll get as soon as it comes out. Well, I just finished a book and I'm, I'm going to be doing a podcast on it called The Last Kings of Shanghai. And it's about two Jewish families that both had emigrated from Baghdad. They were Iraqi Jews in the 17 and 1800s, became British citizens, were hugely involved in the opium trade when China was being opened and abused by the West. And then were largely responsible for, in the 1930s and early 40s, the development of Shanghai. A lot of those old Art Deco buildings, uh, one person, um, Victor Sassoon, was at the time probably the richest person in Asia, if not the world. And he had incredible real estate holdings in China, in Shanghai. They did textiles. They did. They still were doing some opium. But just had this incredibly huge network of industries. And then um, it, it talks about those two families and then what happened during World War II as Jews were trying to escape Europe. Shanghai was one of the few places they could go without a visa. And the two families helped those people. Uh, so a really fascinating book. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about it. But uh, I think you'd probably enjoy it. Yeah, I, I have heard nothing of this, the story, yeah, let alone the book. All right. For um, if you're listening, please uh, subscribe um, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we're trying to do these about every two weeks. And Ken, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, we, I enjoyed the book, and I enjoyed talking about it with you. Likewise, looking forward to my next assignment, Jamie. It's been fun. 